0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 240, which is another one of my slightly unusual podcasts during this ongoing period of busyness and chaos for us that I announced a few weeks back. The only difference being that the cause of our busyness and chaos has changed. Previously, it was being caused by a series of family events and Building maintenance, etc. But now of course, it's being caused, as as no doubt it is for all of you out there as well, it's being caused by this wretched COVID-19 pandemic. So that now my podcasting output is challenged by unpredictable work patterns in my family and the need for basically childcare brought on by, you know, these school and nursery closures that we have here in the UK. So that all makes it very difficult to get down to the creative business of podcasting and especially difficult to conduct interviews, which is what TMR is mainly known for, and which of course I especially enjoy doing um, that also explains incidentally why I seem to be concentrating so much on these movie review podcasts. I had intended that they would happen occasionally, say you know every fourth or fifth podcast, something like that, the others being mainly interviews but it is, at the moment, so difficult to make definite arrangements with people, especially people I don't know, you know, authors and academics who come on the show. I just I just can't make definite arrangements, because things can change at a moment's notice. Um, so I am choosing, at the moment, to do more of these movie reviews with personal friends, friends of the podcast, people like Frank Johnson and Mark Campbell, GK, you know, who are therefore more flexible with with making arrangements and breaking arrangements. Um It's not that TMR is on its way to becoming a movie review podcast, it's just that circumstances are dictating that this seems to be the best thing to be doing at the moment because of its flexibility. So after today's podcast, and um possibly another short one in a few days from now, not sure, possibly, I am planning that TMR number 242 or 241, depends what happens. Um, we'll be at another movie review podcast with Frank Johnson and GK of Light Flint Radio, um, and we'll be looking at the film 12 Monkeys, obviously enough because of the situation we all find ourselves in at the moment. And that will give us all an opportunity to share our thoughts about what's happening with this pandemic, and uh, particularly our concerns about the aftermath when it eventually comes in terms of the ways in which our freedoms I think we we all recognize the ways in which our freedoms very likely will have been eroded by these events which is very concerning anyway that's for the next time or, or, or the time after so quickly on to the rest of today's podcast um, a few weeks ago I said that during this time I would probably reshare a few things from the TMR archive, not least because new listeners tend not to delve back into the archive. Um, So here is one, in fact, it's one of my favourite interviews, which, um, given that it is Easter Sunday today, seems especially fitting to revisit. It's my interview with Dr. Gary Habermas, who is a world authority on the resurrection and a university philosophy professor. He is, in fact, a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University in the US. And the uh, interview is on the subject of what Dr. Habermas calls the minimal facts approach to the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which, um, well, actually, I I won't say what that is, because then you'll have to listen to find out. Um, Anyway, I was very pleased with this particular conversation, um, as I know he was as well, uh, because on his website, he kindly wrote this, quote, a high-quality interview with Gary Habermas, giving an overview of the minimal facts approach to the resurrection of Jesus, a must-listen and a great place to start research into the historical evidence for the resurrection. The interview was originally given on March the nineteenth, 2014, on the Mind Renewed radio programme England. And uh, I think it is an informative conversation and a very uplifting one as well. And I think that being uplifted is something that we could you know, really do with just at the moment. So if you haven't heard it before... I very much hope you do enjoy it and benefit from it. And if you have heard it before, I hope you take the time to re-listen and find it edifying. So I hope to speak to you again soon. Uh, In the meantime, if you can, please do keep safe and keep well. And I leave you with the conversation I had with Dr. Gary Habermas way back in 2014. The minimal facts approach to the resurrection of Jesus. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, as we are fast approaching the season of Easter, which will be upon us in a few weeks from now, I'm delighted to be able to welcome to the programme one of the world's leading experts in resurrection studies, Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas is Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and Chair of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. He's taught at university level since the mid-1970s and has published a large number of articles and reviews, some of which are available to read at his website Gary com, and he's authored or edited around 40 books about half of which are on the subject of the resurrection of jesus and that of course is going to be the subject of our conversation today dr habermas thank you very much for joining us i understand that you've been on a, a really rather grueling lecture tour very recently so it's, it's very good of you to spare the time to join us thanks for coming on
1: not a problem yeah i was out for about two weeks but i'm uh home and my feet on the ground and ready to go
0: great now I've been aware of your work for quite a few years actually and I've, I've admired the way in which you've attempted to make an intellectually credible and I think actually very persuasive case for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus and uh, you have what you call your minimal facts approach and I want to ask you about that in a few moments but I think that I came to hear of you, first of all, through your debate or one of your debates with Anthony Flew. And that, for listeners who don't know, Anthony Flew was, of course, a very famous British philosopher and long-time atheist and in his later years he became persuaded to believe in some kind of creator God and it's interesting to note that you were actually part of the conversation that led to Anthony Flew's change of mind. So could I begin by asking you to tell us a bit more about your own work? How did you get into being interested in studying the resurrection and perhaps you could throw in a little bit about uh, what it was like discussing with Anthony Flew?
1: Yes. I tell people, I first started studying the resurrection, well, actually decades ago, and uh, it was a very selfish pursuit at first. I wasn't trying to become a college professor. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. All I knew was that I had some real serious questions about religion and whether there was any such truth as religion at all. A lot of my friends said well, check out this evidence for religion, or check out this evidence, or check out that evidence. And for a while, I I was looking at all these different avenues, history, archaeology, some people would propose biblical prophecy, and so on. And as I looked at these topics, I thought, I just don't see, I mean, I see some interesting arguments here, but nothing that can really, you know, change the case by itself, and and one day I realized that if the Christian belief that Jesus was raised from the dead, not just the event, but in the milieu of Jesus and who he was and what he claimed, because it, it's not just a resurrection, it's the resurrection of a specific person, it occurred to me that, that I could hang all my uh, religious questions pretty much on that event and on the worldview that comes from that event. So, it was a very private pursuit for many years. Um, to answer your other question, I met Tony Flew in 1985, so it was quite a while ago, and we have had three debates on the uh, resurrection of Jesus, and then we've had a couple other dialogues in addition to that, which largely were back-and-forth discussions of his trek toward Uh, He interchanged the words, but his trek toward deism or theism, I I like the way you said it, some kind of belief in God as creator. I mean, it's possible that he did more writing on atheism than anybody who ever lived. I mean, somebody should do an analysis of that, but it's probably the case. And uh, late in his life, for the last uh, few years of his life, He was decidedly not an atheist. He and I were good friends by that time. We had many, many talks about a lot of things besides religion. And I can tell you, late in his life, he totally assumed that uh, there was a God.
0: Yeah, it was certainly a very astonishing thing to happen. We heard about it in the news. I think many people just couldn't believe that it had happened. Such a significant figure as Anthony Flew, of all people, had changed his mind, at least to some extent. Um, that change, though, was it largely, do you think, due to the argument from design? Do you think that's what tipped it for him?
1: Well, I can tell you directly, since uh, I had those two, at least two, dialogues with him and one was a, is a published article. It was published in the journal Philosophia Christi, and uh, I think it's still online. Uh, I asked him those questions directly, and, and he told me from the beginning that there were two chief arguments that persuaded him. One was a philosophical argument, and he said it was the more persuasive of the two arguments, and that he described it as Aristotle's metaphysics. I mean, when you start asking questions like, why is there something rather than nothing in the universe, that sort of question, he credited Aristotle with uh, getting the ball rolling in some of those areas, and he said that was very influential to him to answer those questions. Uh, Secondly, some of the intelligent design materials that he read from, uh, I know he was impressed with Michael Behe and Bill Dembski, for example, as, as being two people, but some of the intelligent design arguments really got a hold of him, and then, and then I maybe I'll add a third. He said it was those two, but then later in his book, There is a God, he describes that there needs to be a cause for the laws of nature. So that might fall under that Aristotelian category, but those are some of the things that really had a bearing on him and caused him to change his views.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because those sort of cosmological uh, views on things also relate to intelligent design, don't they? Because of the uh, commonly said that the you know initial constants of the universe need to be exactly right for us to be here, and that sort of thing seems to imply a kind of intelligent design position as well. Um, could you also say how it is that you actually got into the academic research of the resurrection?
1: Yes, it started as my answering my own questions. It's just my nature, I guess, but I. Pushed and pushed and pushed. And in those days, you kept your notes on three by five cards, so you can tell how long ago that was. <laughs> uh, you know, way pre computer. And I ended up with uh, something like 1,600 note cards on the resurrection, which later became one of the primary bases for my uh, writing my doctoral dissertation, Michigan State University, on the resurrection of Jesus. So what was initially a private study, just to answer my own questions, became the basis for my dissertation. And, of course, once I got my dissertation finished and it accepted, I had already decided before I went on for the Ph.D. that teaching was the way to go. So the private study kind of issued into a... A long-term study and into my dissertation and eventually into my uh, teaching and publishing ever since then.
0: Mm -hmm. As I said a few minutes ago, I've long been attracted to your minimal facts approach to making a historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, I don't know whether that was part of your PhD. Perhaps you could tell us in a moment. But I think that this minimal facts approach avoids the trap that some people seem to fall into of saying that you know you should believe in the resurrection because the bible says it happened and uh, of course that presupposes you already believe the bible to be inspired in some kind of way but your approach avoids that and it presents a purely historical line of reasoning so could you explain what you mean by your minimal facts approach to the resurrection and how that actually works in an argument
1: You know, Julian, I've done a lot of interviews on this subject, and I don't know Mm. that I've said this before, at least not very often, but what pushed me to the minimal facts argument? And to answer your question, yes, it figured in my doctoral dissertation is where I first uh, started developing these ideas. But what pushed me in that direction were my own doubts. Mm. I moved toward the minimal facts argument because I wasn't a bit sure about the reliability of the new testament in fact having having rejected in my personal life any kind of tight view on say inspiration i wasn't even sure if i could be sure that the new testament was reliable so i thought to myself okay now here's my problem if i need the resurrection and the corresponding christian worldview you know called christian theism If I need that to hang my religious questions, but if I don't know that the resurrection is somehow based on reliable material, if I don't know the New Testament's reliable, where do I go from here? So I remember exactly where I was when I first started making a list up on how I could get to the resurrection without assuming the reliability of the New Testament. So again, the minimal facts argument was a private answer for my doubts, then the next stage it became the basis for the evidential portion of my dissertation, and then later it's blossomed into all of this work I've done on that ever since.
0: And this actual approach takes, if I understand it correctly, it takes what you say the majority of scholars agree on with various propositions that you take in your argument. You say, well, the majority of scholars believe on this. This is likely to be the case. And then you take another proposition. You say the majority of scholars believe this. This is likely to be the case. And you, you work up an argument from there. But in each case, as I say, if I've got you correctly, you do say the majority of scholars. Could you tell us what you mean by that? Are you talking about 51% or are you talking about 95%?
1: Right. Good question. Before I answer that, There's one previous step in the minimal facts argument. There's actually, to my way of thinking, there's two steps uh, that have to be present for the minimal fact argument as a whole and any one of the minimal facts within that argument. The first step is by far the most important, and that is that I will not use any facts which are not evidenced in several different directions by several well-received facts. So the first one is these pieces of data, these facts must be evidentially sound, just on their own grounds. Whether anybody in the world accepts them or not, they must have good reasons in their favor and more than one reason. All right, then secondly, as sort of a byproduct of having good reasons, it just is the case that most scholars who deal with this subject Fall into line because the reasons if they're good reasons and they don't rely on the New Testament being inspired or special or trustworthy or something then a lot of scholars kind of fall into line so I do get a lot of publicity for that second step that says most scholars agree but it really depends on the first step that there be several independent reasons for each of these facts now having said that you ask what percent Um, I have different levels when I do the minimal facts argument. Sometimes I present a list of uh, about a dozen arguments, and then I arbitrarily reduce it to five, six, or seven. And I say arbitrarily because virtually everybody will give me all dozen. I don't know how many things are recorded in the Gospels, but let's just say for the sake of the argument, the Gospels record a hundred separate little things concerning the crucifixion, burial, resurrection and appearances of Jesus. Let's just say there's a hundred things there. Someone's being very, very skeptical if they say, no, I'm I'm going to reject eighty percent of that material. I'm not going to give you more than twenty of those things. Basically what I'm saying is, all right, well I'll take those twenty and let's just reduce the list to a dozen. And then I'll say, hey, let's just reduce the list again five six or seven and the number changes because nobody only gives me five six or seven it depends on what i'm trying to do in that very article so i reduce the list but when i get to that short list in particular and really in a way the 12 facts but when i get down to those five six seven i'm talking in the 90s percentile of scholars who write on this and one word about the word scholars i don't count every person who tries to write a blog or talk off the top of their head, or angry atheists who just go off on things but don't have credentials. When I say scholars, whether I'm talking about conservative, a moderate, a liberal, or a skeptic, I will freely include the whole line all the way over to the most you know, critical atheists. I'll include everybody.
0: Oh, that's very interesting because a lot of a lot of people would say that when you say 90-odd percent of scholars, you are, in fact, talking about believers and you're not including those who don't believe who are skeptical. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely not. The list is way beyond believers. And, in fact, I published recently, I published an article in the, um, I think it's on my website, but in the Journal of the uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, their Journal of Theology, and I did it on the Minimal Facts. I tried to explain to people, if anything, I favored the skeptics more than I favored the conservatives on the other end, and there's a reason for that. So many of the skeptics, so many of the best-known scholars who criticize the Resurrection, they don't meet my definition of scholar. Now, my definition is somebody who's worked in the field, knows the data, has a terminal degree, teaching position uh, in a school or something like that. They might be a pastor in a few rare cases, but they have to have a terminal degree. They have to be, you know, and and hopefully, not always, but hopefully they have peer-reviewed publications. That's kind of my definition of scholar. In other words, I want people, I don't care how liberal they are. I don't care how conservative they are. I don't care how off-the-board atheist they are. But they have to have some credentials to be talking. I'm not trying to go up and down and knock on houses, doors, and say, what do you believe about the resurrection? So I have to distinguish them. And because I do that, some of the best-known skeptics who raise the best questions about the resurrection don't have those credentials at all. Some of them don't have more than a bachelor's degree. And some of them who have a degree, they're in other fields. So these guys they don't have university positions. They don't have peer-reviewed publications. But because they publish some articles against the resurrection and have a little bit of a reputation, I count their things. In other words, what I'm saying is the guys on the far left side of the spectrum, that is the only category that I, quote-unquote, give a break to and don't require my strict definition of scholarship before I will count them. I count them anyway. So if anything, I think I favor the people on the far left. If it were a conservative, I would be really strict. If it were conservative, you might say, well, I'm an evangelical, but I'd say, okay, fine. Do you have a PhD? I do. From an accredited school? Absolutely. Do you have a university position? I do. Do you have some peer-reviewed publications? As a matter of fact, I do. Well, see, a lot of the critics get upset with me for counting those kind of guys, and I'm asking you're going to get upset with me for counting conservatives who have PhDs in peer-reviewed publications, but you want me to count every skeptic in the world without qualifications? I think that's a little prejudice, but absolutely. But I do see that a lot. People yeah. complain about that in their blogs.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. No, I, from, from what you said there, that's completely reasonable what you've uh, just described there. And so you take this broad consensus of academics in the field, and you take those particular propositions about which 90-odd percent of them agree, and you then build an argument out of that, not based upon the authority of the Bible, but if you like, arguing the other way around for the authority of what is said there, based upon this argument that you're constructing. So I'd like you to please, if you would, actually explain how that argument might work, using some of that data to actually construct a case, an historical case, for the resurrection of Jesus. Could you work that through for us?
1: Sure. Sure. Let me give you a kind of a word picture, kind of a contrast that I think will be real helpful to your listeners to kind of set this up. Hmm. Rather than argue what I call a top-down approach, you know, conservatives often argue, here we've got this book called the New Testament, and since it's reliable, since it's God's Word, since it's inspired, they use different phrases. Everything in it's true, or almost everything in it's true, or something like that. I kind of call that a top-down kind of, we've got this book and everything in the book can be unpacked. Mine is a bottom-up approach. And think of the minimal facts as bricks. And when I get one of these facts, which have the two requirements, that they're evidenced for many reasons, and it just happens that the vast majority of scholars agree. I mean, if someday the vast majority of scholars reject it, I still have the data. I still have the evidence saying that these are minimal facts. And that's my main point. So that becomes a brick. And with this brick... What I try to say is, what would if now going from the general to the specific, what would the life of Jesus look like? How many life of Jesus bricks do we have? Or if somebody says, uh, "Was Jesus a miracle worker, not counting his resurrection?" I'd say, "Well, you know, the tables have totally changed in critical scholarship, and here's some bricks. That argue for Jesus being a miracle worker, and someone says, "Well, all right, well, let's talk about his death on the cross." Okay, here's some crucifixion bricks to talk about, with each brick representing a, a crucial, well-evidenced fact. And then we, you know, we get to the burial, and we get to the empty tomb, and we get to the resurrection appearances. Here's an example for you. I just submitted a paper topic to read a paper to a society. I just did it this week, and I'm arguing that in the literature. From contemporary scholars there are more than 20 arguments that are put forward for the empty tomb alone and the empty tomb is just one piece of the resurrection puzzle so what I do with this list of 12 facts that I told you about 12 ish sometimes 10 11 12 uh, and then sometimes I shorten that list to 5 to 7 sometimes even less than that what I do is I have I have these pieces of historical information for example Jesus died due to crucifixion. Now, that might be a brick, but under that brick, Jesus died by crucifixion. If you were to say to me, how do you know Jesus died by crucifixion? I might have a half dozen sub-bricks underneath that one, the big brick being Jesus died by crucifixion. But I have about six or eight reasons to believe that that's historical, so, I would put that together, and of course, if you think about this in the big picture, that would argue that the swoon theory or the apparent death theory is not true because there's you know six or eight evidences for the fact that Jesus is crucified so that that 's the death of Jesus. Um, I just mentioned a moment ago twenty ish arguments for the empty tomb, so my my brick would be the empty tomb, but under the brick of the empty tomb, I would have twenty you want to call them sub-bricks, that's what I mean by that first argument, where all these different arguments all come together and point to the one brick, then it's pretty much undeniable. I mean, I've I've written a peer-reviewed article in a non-evangelical journal, I've done this more than once, arguing that the single most difficult thing to explain about the uh, whole situation here is that the disciples became utterly convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is conceded by virtually everybody in the critical community. Uh, Facts like Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, Jesus dying by crucifixion, and his early followers believing they saw him alive afterwards. And, And notice my language, they believe they saw him again. Those are probably the bedrock facts that are very seldom disputed. And so I'll take that event, they thought they saw the risen Jesus. They thought they saw the risen Jesus. And I'll start asking hypotheses like, uh, well, could this explain it, or could that explain it? And then I see what the accepted data argue against it. And the bottom line is, which hypothesis best explains what the disciples thought they saw?
0: And this is based upon uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he gives us this list of eyewitnesses, is it not? Um, how, How much confidence can we have that that particular letter is even by Paul?
1: Well, of the 13 books that bear Paul's name in the New Testament, six to eight of them are used by critical scholars. No matter how far left you go, they will use that list. For example, in our country, Art Ehrman, he, he kind of crosses the, uh, the the ocean in a way because most of his books are published by Oxford University Press, but he's probably the best known skeptic in North America. He calls himself an agnostic leaning toward atheism and he tells people, you know, I'm not a Christian, so what I'm saying is not prejudiced from a believer's viewpoint. And yet in his introduction to New Testament he calls these six to eight books the undisputed Pauline epistles. And he's not the only one. I mean, Helmut Kirster of uh, Harvard, who's a German hmm. scholar who studied under Rudolf Bultmann and so on, this is just common parlance to talk about the undisputed Pauline epistles. And there's six to eight of them, but First Corinthians is always one of them. First Corinthians is always allowed as an authentic Pauline epistle. Now, that doesn't mean... Critics think of First Corinthians in any way as inspired. They don't talk like that. Critics think of First Corinthians this way. We know who the author is, Paul. He's a scholar. Now, he himself says he was a Pharisee. And the book of Acts, if they think that can be trusted, says Paul studied under Gamaliel, who was the chief Jewish teacher of that time. So you might say he got his graduate degrees from the top guy in the field. They would say Paul is authoritative, and he was in the right place at the right time. He could carry a good argument. Anthony Flew, in his atheist days, used to call Paul a first-rate philosophical mind. And if you would ask Tony, oh, so you think Paul's inspired? He'd say, certainly not. Well, then what do you mean, first-rate philosophical mind? He'd say, just read his books. Just read Romans. He can construct an argument. He knows how to argue philosophically. So they would let you use Paul, and, and that's a much misunderstood point. When people say, well, you're doing minimal facts, how come you're quoting the Bible? Because the critics will quote the Bible. If you don't use the New Testament, Bart Ehrman will. Yeah. He will cite the same information, but he will only use the bricks that are attested.
0: Indeed, it is commonly misunderstood that the biblical text doesn't contain any historical data, which is absurd. Right. Um, can I just go back to 1 Corinthians 15? This is the. I mean, not everybody will be familiar with this, so let me just read a little bit of it. This is where Paul says that he was passed on a tradition. He doesn't say where he got it from but he received this early tradition and he he gives a list of eyewitnesses of people who at least thought they saw Jesus raised from the dead so he says, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to twelve, after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep, which, of course, is a way of saying they've died. Uh, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then uh, he says, last of all, he appeared to be also as to one uh, born out of the right time. So there he gives this list. um, And you say that the majority of scholars accept that this is indeed written by Paul. So where did Paul get this list from? I mean, he says it's a, a tradition passed down to him. Can we trust this list?
1: Yeah, there are probably at least a half dozen reasons that show us that this was a piece of tradition. The way the scholars say it is, it's pre-Pauline. Is Bart Ehrman. I cite him a lot because of how critical he is and how well-known he is as a, as a critical scholar. Bart Ehrman says, you know, let's keep in mind what pre-Pauline means. If the trip to Damascus is two years after the cross – if paul believes he saw the risen jesus at 2 years after the cross pre-pauline means it comes from between the cross and paul's conversion so you've got a real short 2 year window there between the the cross and conversion or at the very least between the cross and Paul's first trip to Jerusalem. Now, Paul's first trip to Jerusalem is dated in a way. You can do the math for yourself, but it's in Galatians chapter 1. And by the way, Galatians is also one of those undisputed Pauline books. And Paul says, after his conversion, he said, three years later, I went to Jerusalem. Now, if you add that up, if you think, well, I, I mean, I was doing this in, up in Vancouver, Canada, a few days ago, and there was one of the top New Testament scholars we were speaking together Craig Evans, um, the Canadian scholar, and he was was sitting there in the front row, and and just to make my point, I was lecturing, and I said, Craig, when was Paul converted? And Craig said, plus two, two years after the cross. All right, well, if Paul believes he saw the risen Jesus, if that event on the way to Damascus happened at plus two, three years later he went to Jerusalem, so plus two plus three equals five, so this first event where he goes to Jerusalem is approximately five years after the cross. Some people believe Damascus was only one year after the cross, so then it would be only plus four. So pre-Pauline comes in that slot, possibly just two-year slot between the cross and Paul's conversion, possibly the uh, you know a five-year slot between the cross and Paul's first trip to Jerusalem. So... And that's the consensus New Testament position. Richard Baucom, the uh, very well-known Cambridge University New Testament scholar, tells us that the consensus New Testament position is that Paul received this material in his first trip to Jerusalem approximately five years after the, the crucifixion.
0: So this is where he first went to Jerusalem and visited Peter and James, and you're saying that most scholars would say this is where he got this list of eyewitnesses.
1: Correct, where he heard the testimony. Now, Sometimes I like to say to people, we could be more skeptical than the skeptics here. see the list in first Corinthians fifteen three and following is a standardized list. It goes by these are not these words are not exactly the same, but they're more or less synonyms It's called a creed or a tradition or a confession mm. and it's a it's standardized let's put it this way it was memorized and passed around orally for people, not only for people who were literate, but for people who were illiterate. I mean, illiterate people can still memorize, obviously, poetry or sing songs with words. And the First Corinthians fifteen three and following seems to have two stanzas. And in the Greek, it reads like da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you have these two sets of appearances that you, you just read. And because it's standardized like that, you can tell it's been passed on in a very... Paul says, I gave you what I was given. So it makes sense that he got it from a very early date. And it had to be from somebody he thought was trustworthy. Why would Paul, an apostle who met Jesus, take any old list from somebody he didn't know who it was from, you know, when he himself has been a good scholar?
0: Absolutely. And just going back to that uh, language thing that you were discussing there, is it true that that... Uh, modulation, that rhythm, comes over in where it says and that, and then it says such and such, and that, such and such, like a list of bullet points, that that's Correct. how it comes over in the English.
1: That's a good point. Bullet points is a good way to say it. I, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that there are about a half dozen reasons to believe that this is an early creed, and that is one of them, the mm. and that. In Greek, it's ha and that, and that, and that. It's a Hebrew way of narrating it 's a Hebrew way of passing on a chain of comments, but of the half dozen reasons for believing this is a pre pauline creed, and by the way i 'll just add we're, you you were asking me a little while ago what percentage of scholars believe these facts,, yeah. I would say the conclusion that first corinthians fifteen three and following is an early pre pauline creed that is probably as strong a conclusion as there is in the entire New testament i mean it 's wow. an extremely mm-hmm well-established position, but the main reason to hold it is simply because Paul is an authoritative voice. This is an authoritative epistle. He wouldn't purposely lie. This is what critics believe. You know, they're not saying he's infallible, but the critics, but they're saying he's not going to lie. And Paul says, verse 3, I gave you what I was given. So the best reason for saying Paul's passing on tradition is that he says that's exactly what he's doing.
0: Absolutely. And I agree with you. It seems quite implausible to say that he would lie. There doesn't seem to be any reason why he should lie indeed. But that leaves us with the possible conclusion here. Well, two possible conclusions that, in fact, they did see, really did see the risen Christ, or that possibly right. they just thought they did, but they had some kind of hallucination. Or, in fact, other people suggest that they they saw something, but it was an illusion. They don't really know what they saw. So how can we deal with those kinds of objections?
1: Yeah, and you're right when you say those kinds, plural. um, Hallucination and illusions are two very different sorts of theses, and so are delusions. That's another one. Uh, So, those are three uh, hallucinations, illusions, delusions are different views. But what I hear you asking is how can we just make sure that the disciples didn't see things, let's just say shorthand, see things that weren't Jesus, see things that weren't appearances. And it depends on which of these theories you're talking about, hallucination, delusion, or illusion, or whatever. But if you just take hallucination, which is the best-known form of this, I've got a good friend named Gary Sibsey. He is the, I mean, he's no average scholar. He's written uh, a number of books, and he is the director of our M.A. Ph.D. program here in counseling. He's a clinical psychologist by training. He works in a hospital. So he's got all this empirical background on testing, and he did a literature review, a very thorough literature review on the question, are there any group hallucinations in the psychological literature? Are there any group hallucinations? And, of course, there's all kinds of stories that people tell, but scholars don't, you know, they're not going to make a theory based on a newspaper article and some unnamed person. So he asked the question, is there clinical evidence For group hallucinations, and he found nothing. He said there's not a single validated case of a known group hallucination. Now, the problem with using that theory, then, of the resurrection appearances is that if we use only the earliest list in Paul, the list you just read, there are three group appearances there. You've got a group appearance to a group called the Twelve, the Apostles, you've got a group appearance to a group called the 500 brethren now if that, that that's important if you take it that brethren is a generic term for brothers and sisters well then there might have just been 500 if you take that to mean 500 men brethren that group could have been a lot larger with uh you know women or children or whatever but there's a very large group of at least 500 and then thirdly you have a group called All the Apostles, which is a larger group than the Twelve. So there's three group appearances in our earliest list that goes back to the early 30s. Now, scholars will generally also put the women in there. For example, the Jesus Seminar, a very, very skeptical group in our country, and now there's a British sort of segment of this in the U.K., but uh, it wasn't a, a North American group for a long time and they're very skeptical. They reject 80 to 90 percent of the so-called red letter words of Jesus in the Gospels. And they even say that besides the list in Paul, you have to give some credence to the women, who of course are not listed in the group of appearances that Paul lists.
0: That's interesting. Now, why, why does Paul not include that in the list?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, scholars think it's because Even by that very early date that the evidence was collated and put together to say he appeared to this person, this person, and there's five appearances, and then the last one, the sixth one, is to Paul. Uh, Everybody thinks Paul added his name to the back end of that list, but the women aren't there, and people think that by that early, early date that that list came about, somewhere between zero and a maximum of five years after the cross is probably more like zero to two years after the cross. By the way, Bart Ehrman dates this material one to two years from the cross, and he's the agnostic leaning toward atheism, and he's a specialist New Testament scholar, and he lists it as one to two years after the cross. So this isn't some conservative propaganda. No, 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 sure,
0: but- sure. Yeah, so I must press you then, why, why are the women missed off this list at this early stage?
1: Yeah, they think that even by this very early date, one to two years after the cross for this early creed in First Corinthians 15, early believers were already trying to put their best evidential foot forward, and they didn't think they were helping their case by including the women. Mm-hmm. It's incorrect, by the way, to say that women could not testify in a court of law in those days. Uh, they could but there was kind of an inverse relation between how important the issue was and if you had any men witnesses whatsoever. So by the time this creed comes out at a very early date, it's almost as if they don't want to talk about the women. Now, we can't be sure why they left it out, but it seems to be that they left the women out because they thought, if you started your list with the women, your audience would be laughing so hard by the time you got to Peter, the next one, that uh, you wouldn't even be able to make your case. So they just weren't putting their best evidential point forward.
0: Yeah, so it was essentially a a strategy in their argument that caused them to make that decision.
1: Yeah, but the the conclusion, where I was going with that was the conclusion Mm -hmm. is there's at least four group appearances, uh, the 12, all the apostles, the 500, and the women. So You've got four there, and the problem with, with it is if there's no documented, cited group hallucinations in the psychological literature, you know, it's pretty – You know, now somebody might interrupt here and say, yeah, 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 but there are no resurrections in the literature either. Okay, I understand that. But this isn't a mass hallucination versus a resurrection, and we'll take the mass hallucination because it's less miraculous. The problem is you need at least four mass hallucinations. That's my point. You need at least four. Now what's more likely? A resurrection or four natural events that have never been known to occur in the literature, and every one of them happened to Jesus of Nazareth. You know, when Jesus is the only one, now it's starting to sound like what the New Testament says, that... Jesus is the only one. <laughs> you know that's the New Testament message.
0: Yeah, but what what interests me about this is what scholars who don't accept that Jesus actually rose from the dead and would say that these people didn't actually see real resurrection appearances. What do those scholars do with this? If they recognise your argument here that uh, it was very very implausible to say that it was a, a mass hallucination, what are they left with at the end? What are they just left with silence on this matter?
1: Well, that, that's a that's a fantastic question, Julian. Uh, by the way. That the whole first point, a mass hallucination, that's just one argument. There are other arguments against hallucinations. For example, I ask my students this way. I'll say, okay, well, look, we've got 20 plus arguments for the empty tomb in the critical literature. Critical literature. We have 20 arguments. And I'll ask them, is the empty tomb a empty body view or is it a full body view? Well, it's an empty tomb, so it's empty the empty tomb, if it's true, that's a huge nail in the coffin of hallucination, because if it's an hallucination, there shouldn't be an empty tomb. You've got two skeptics. I'm not even talking about Thomas, but skeptics. Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. Critics allow that both of them were skeptics. But they come to believe in the resurrection. Why so? Hmm. How do you get critics involved? Do you do you want me to believe they had hallucinations, that they were longing to see the, the risen Jesus so uh, there's probably no critical theory that has more refutations than the hallucination theory. And yet scholars know they have to explain that the early disciples thought they saw something. So that's why hallucination is so popular because they have to the theory you pick has to be in the seeing category. They've got to see something, and hallucinations just don't work.
0: And so they have to go for some kind of naturalistic explanation. I mean, this brings me on to the question as to, I mean, there is this view, it's espoused by theologians like Don Cupid, for example, who say, you know, when you're doing history, you can't Touch on anything supernatural at all, you know. Historical study can only hypothesize natural causes, and they, they will tend to bring up this scientific principle of methodological naturalism—a is bit of a, a mouthful—which um, means, you know, you can only hypothesize these natural causes. So, whether the resurrection happened or not, uh, history as a discipline just can't discuss it. Um, do you think that that's a, a reasonable way of going around history?
1: Well, I mean, there's a side of me that understands what he's saying because I've also studied. My PhD is history in philosophy and philosophy of religion, and I had to satisfy the history department. And by the way, I'll say that the, the history department representative on my dissertation committee was a Jewish historian, so he had to be satisfied that I was playing by the rules with the dissertation, too. But there's a side of me that says I understand what he's saying, but I think there's two major ways to go after this objection. And by the way, there's many beyond Cupid who would make the same point. It's a very common view. I would say two responses to it uh, would be something like this. If you want to, I have objections to staying in the methodological realm, but if you want to, if you want to stay in the methodological naturalism realm, then let's talk about two purely natural events. And I think we have the history to answer these two questions. Here's my two questions, and let's stay in historical, natural methodology. My first question, did Jesus die on the cross? It's a medical question. It's also an historical question. And you probably know that uh, virtually no scholars today question. You you know, John Dominic Crossan, the Irish uh, theologian, now lives in the U.S., and Marcus Borg, an American who... uh, Did his de-fill at Oxford, so we're we're crossing the uh, pond here a couple times with these two guys. Very, very skeptical. Co-founders of the American Jesus Seminar, and both of them say in their own words, the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion is as strong as any event in the ancient world. Now, that's a very strong statement that he died. That's my first question. Did he die? Did he die, period? But did he die by crucifixion? Second question. Did some persons? So I'll keep it very general, did some person see him, the dead man, the dead crucified man, did some person see him alive after his crucifixion? Both of those are historical, natural questions. Now, if Cupid or somebody jumped in here and said, yeah, 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 but that would be a miracle. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, l- listen to the way I'm saying this. Did this man die on the cross? Purely historical question. And cross and a Borg say it's as solid as anything in the ancient world. Now, did I see you, Julian, last night in the the marketplace? Did I see you buying some food? That That's a very historical question, yay or nay? Did I see you? You go, yeah, but the minute you say Jesus after cross is a miracle. Well, you know what's amazing about that kind of comeback is that they're doing what believers do. Uh, we can't assume this is a miracle. A miracle, by definition, means God performed the event. I'm doing resurrection in a historical vacuum. Notice in this whole conversation, I have never once said God did this. That's another question. So here's my two questions. Did this man die, by the way, by crucifixion? And number two, did I see you in the market yesterday? I mean, did I see this man in public yesterday? Now, those are two historically, methodologically natural mm-hmm. things I can ask. And I go, oh, well, I don't like that, because you're asking about Jesus. Yeah, but you're jumping the gap. You're putting the two together. You're building a bridge. And then you're building a bridge up to God. I'm not asking those things. I'm only saying that this guy died by crucifixion, and did somebody see him? Mm-hmm. So that's one way to get around the natural.
0: Now, this is where, this... That's that's fascinating because that seems to have the same kind of logical structure as an intelligent design argument. In that the intelligent design proponents will typically say that we can look at nature and we can infer because of the characteristics of nature, whatever the the area of study might be, that there is. Design It has been designed. But then when you go further than that to say what you think the nature of the designer is, well, that's a further question that stands outside of intelligent design as a scientific study. But nevertheless, that study has brought you to that point where you can then go beyond and, and, and make that decision for yourself. And it seems to me that you're doing something very similar here.
1: Yeah, except, Julian, I, I'm, I'm, changing the, I'm changing the tables around in this important respect. You're right. That is an intelligent design type thing. But... When people like Michael Behe and Bill Dembski argue intelligent design, the entire methodological naturalistic community say, foul, that's foul. You can't bring God into science. And there, it's the critics who say you can't start talking about design when you're talking about scientific conclusions. But now when Gary Habermas is talking about history and did this man – die in the cross, and was he seen as as I either saw you or didn't see you at the market yesterday, they have turned the tables. Methodological naturalists who've said, oh, this sounds like design to me. You see what I mean? It's the critics in the intelligent design thing are saying no design, but in, my, in the resurrection question, they're saying, seems like design. <laughs> and it's the... Christians who are saying, No, I'm not talking about design, I'm just asking if this guy died on the cross and if somebody saw him later. That's all.
0: <laughs> it's not not what you would expect to hear. If you argue, indeed, no, indeed, indeed. No. Another thing that people would say is that not just that you can't do history that way, but they would say, of course, while we're living in this modern world, we know that miracles don't happen. How, how anybody could know that, I don't know, beats me. But a lot of people will say things like that. This is an age where we know miracles don't happen. So, therefore, logically, we have to say the resurrection. If it was a miracle, it must have been a miracle. That cannot have happened. What's your answer to that one?
1: Yes, see, now I said a moment ago when you go after natural, uh, methodological naturalism, there's at least two ways to do it. One is this one I just did. Did this man die? Was this man seen? The other way to go after it is this one that you're talking about right now. And I would wade right into the middle of that conversation, and I would go after what you just said. You know, come on, you're talking a supernatural thesis, and this is uh, 2014. You know, we can't we can't talk about those things. I would say, really, okay. Here's some of the responses I would say. And i say, let's totally talk nothing but accredited evidence. In fact, let's talk nothing except accredited scientific evidence. Okay. Let's do what all the methodological naturalists want to do. Let's just take a step back. Forget the resurrection for now. What kind of a world is this? Now, the first thing I'm going to ask that guy is you're a naturalist, right? Yep. Well, Could you prove your naturalism to me? Instead of saying, this is the 21st century, we can't believe in the supernatural. Mm. Instead of saying that, instead of begging the issue, could you prove the issue? Could you prove naturalism is (laughs) true? Now, they're going to have... You can't prove naturalism is true. But but here's what I'd also say this. I'd say, here's some other pointers. This is why we should be open to the resurrection being supernatural. If you do want me to go further and link this to God's hand... I would say, I'll just rattle off several things here. Why does the critical community, even the Jesus Seminar people, for example, why does the critical community almost unanimously talk about Jesus being a miracle worker and an exorcist? Now, whether they actually believe in the supernatural, that's another issue. But they believe the evidence is so good that we can talk about Jesus being a miracle worker and an exorcist. Okay, that's one thing to put on the table. If he did other things, other supernatural sounding, let's call them, events, then should I be open to resurrection? Okay, next question. Do we have any modern miracle cases that are attested in the literature? And several books have come out in recent years, uh, some by medical doctors. Uh, The major one is by an American New Testament scholar, Craig Keener, that just came out two years ago, and, and this book is very highly acclaimed. It was published by Baker Academic. It's 1,100 pages, two volumes, and Craig Keener records. He doesn't. He, Craig himself does not know how many are in the book, but there's probably well over 1,000 contemporary miracle claims. That's the point, the miracle claims. He's not arguing that these are all proven. Mm-hmm. Many of them are hearsay, but there's a select number of them in the book, and I've picked out a number of myself that are highly evidential. And by highly evidential, I mean pre- and post-CAT scans, pre- and post-MRIs, pre- and post-X-rays. Uh, you know, that bone was broken, but this bone is not broken, so you've got an issue here. It's the same person, same mm-hmm. bone. So we got these pre- and post-tests, and there are dozens and dozens of these cases today. So I just put that one on the table. Was Jesus a miracle worker, number one? Number two, are there modern miracle claims? Number three, and next to the resurrection, this is a topic that I have studied the most, and I've been doing this ever since the early 1970s, so there's a lot behind what I'm saying. Are near-death experiences factual and evidential? Now all you have to do is look at some of the British publications, for example, and you know any major Western publications around the world and near death experiences are very well accepted in this and naturalistic age, and if you look at polls, people think that they're highly evidential. do near death experiences show that there's some kind of consciousness, five minutes, ten minutes, forty five minutes, one hour after apparent death? and it looks like there is all right, so was Jesus a miracle worker? Looks like it. Are there miracles today? Well, you've got to be open, pre- and post-MRIs, CAT scans, and X-rays. Number three, is there life after death? Can we look at NDEs? How about number four, how about those few, and there's only a few, but how about those few double-blind prayer experiments that have been done in universities or medical schools where prayer has even been written up in medical journals as affecting health? double-blind. So in other words, it's not positive thinking. There's another category, double-blind prayer. So there's four arguments right there. Jesus did miracles, looks like miracles are happening today, life after death, and double-blind prayer. Now let's go back and talk about resurrection. Am I so naive to say that Jesus, this most extraordinary person who ever lived, which by the way is how Bart Ehrman opens up his book, Did Jesus Exist? He's the most extraordinary person who ever lived should I be open to resurrection when he apparently did other miracles? B, we have attested cases today. C, we have double-blind prayer. And D, near-death experiences, which are the exact realm Mm -hmm. that we want to talk about, afterlife. Now, see, it seems to me that you, the naturalist, you're begging the issue when you have a worldview that you cannot even evidence and you're using your unevidenced worldview to tell me that I can't consider a highly evidenced worldview, I think it's about time to say that naturalists are on extremely, extremely weak grounds here. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I never thought of it that way. That's uh, that's. Sorry,
1: sorry for my long answer there. Uh,
0: that, no, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Do you think that also goes some way to answering the common objection based on David Hume that, you know, because our background knowledge of the world tells us there's no such thing as miracles, therefore it's not rational even to believe these kinds of claims. Do you think what you've just listed there actually goes to breaking down this claim that uh, we have background knowledge of the world that is so strong that these things don't happen?
1: Yeah, I, I think the areas I just outlined, if you throw the resurrection, that's five areas, I think would destroy David Hume's argument. But the problem is, a lot of new publications have come out on David Hume's famous essay uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, both in Britain and in North America. And the preponderance of sources say that forget the scientific evidence today, forget the data for, you know, David Hume also argued against immortality. Forget the argument for near-death experiences and miracles and resurrection. Forget all that. As an inductive lesson, as a lesson in how to do inductive research, David Hume was an utter failure. On just simply grounds of how do we do inductive studies today, whether it's uh, history or science, whenever you do induction, was David Hume right? David Hume was demonstrably incorrect when it comes to how you put an argument together. He was a brilliant man, and it was a brilliant essay, but it just seems to be totally false today.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing how that is so little known in the popular culture, where his name's still bandied about as if he's, uh, you know, the bee's knees oh, on, yeah. on absolutely everything to do with such questions.
1: Oh, yeah. When you debate people, they'll just say things like, well, obviously you haven't heard of David <laughs> Hume. And they say it like, <laughs> just... <laughs> You say bandied about, that's exactly what they do.
0: Do they do do that to you as well? Oh, yeah. I actually say that of you, a professor of philosophy. You obviously haven't heard of David Hume.
1: David Hume was part of my doctoral dissertation, so I had to deal with him. But but my point is they just hang his name out there and sometimes don't even know very much about what he wrote. They just think that if you put this boogeyman out there, it's sort of like saying, oh, no, I was hoping you wouldn't bring his name up. Okay, you win. Well, that's not the way the David Hume argument works today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They play their trump card. I must take the opportunity to ask you about the nature of the resurrection. So this is really moving on from the main area of your research. But um, when we look at the New Testament as a whole, we certainly come away with the impression, I think we read it at face value, that Jesus was raised from the dead in some kind of physical sense Um, it wasn't a resuscitation that he he just was the same as he was before but that his body was raised transformed in some way but he was bodily raised, that's what the New Testament seems to imply so that invites the question as to whether the New Testament really does affirm that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead in this glorified way or whether we might in fact be reading it wrongly for some reason and I, I say that because John Dominic Crossan who you mentioned before is a very well respected New Testament scholar, he raises the possibility that perhaps this is metaphorical language and that we've maybe we just misunderstood what's written there
1: yes well all right there's a lot of things here when I first did my doctoral research back in the mid 70s on the subject of the resurrection if you believed that Jesus was raised bodily you were a very small percentage of scholars and we would probably call you evangelical or maybe just, you know, a little broader than evangelical, but almost nobody but those real conservatives thought that he was raised bodily. Today, I published an essay on this just a few years ago, that the majority critical view today on those who answer the question is that the New Testament writers believed that Jesus was raised physically. Now, Tom Wright, uh, N.T. Wright, has done the largest study on this, his 700-page work on the Resurrection of the Son of God, 550 of the 700 pages. I I tell people teasingly, uh, it's the longest word study in history. But Tom did a 550-page argument. The summary would go something like this in just a sentence or two. Um, In the ancient world, whoever used the words Anastasis and Ageru, the words for Resurrection and Raised, whoever used those words, Tom's argument is it makes no difference if the person who uses those words is Jewish, Christian, or pagan. And that's the whole world. But anybody who used those words, they always and only meant bodily. And you go, well, that's ridiculous. A lot of Greeks believed in spirits. I'd say, you're missing my point. You're missing Tom's point. Mm -hmm. They believed in spirits, but they didn't use the words for resurrection to apply to spirits. They would use the word for spirits or something like that whenever you word, use the word resurrection, the word actually means to stand up again. And if what goes in the tomb stands up again, something's happening to the body. Now, that's just his word study. Now it turns out that not only have a lot of scholars believed in bodily resurrection appearances, but now a number of critics, and you mentioned Dom Crossan. Dom is one of them. Garrett Ludemann, the very well-known German He's called a German uh, atheist. He's a New Testament scholar. I don't know if he's an atheist, but he's pretty, pretty skeptical. But uh, Garrett Ludemann, Dom Crossan, Dale Allison, there are a number of well-known skeptical scholars who will say this, whatever my view is, and Dom's view is that the resurrection is a metaphor. The resurrection appearance language is metaphor. But all these people will agree that the New Testament writers thought it was a bodily event. In other words, you have Garrett Ludeman, who definitely does not believe the resurrection, but Garrett Ludeman says for Paul, it was a bodily event, because the New Testament language is the language of physical sight
0: hmm That's really interesting because people do say sometimes that actually what Paul meant by it, as recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 9, is that it was, in fact, some visionary kind of experience for him because of the presence of light and the fact that other travellers on the road didn't see what he saw. And that, I mean, famously, Rudolf Bultmann said that uh, he thought that the physicality of the resurrection was something that developed later in the early church and was written back into the gospel accounts. But from what you're saying, as of tom wright's research there that seems to put the lie to all that kind of approach
1: yeah in fact julian you know what if you and i were dialoguing right now on the resurrection and you had said to me you were my interlocutor and you had just said to me yeah but according to acts nine twenty two and 26 paul has a visionary light experience it doesn't see jesus physically i'd say whoa 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 julian you're on the other side of the issue you're the critic here Do you think the book of Acts is reliable? Now you're immediately in a catch-22, because if you say, yeah, I think Acts is a pretty reliable book, okay, now I've got Luke and Acts, and not only is it reliable, I've got Luke's very physicalistic appearances of it. Luke is the most physicalistic of the writers on the Resurrection Absolutely, and if you say to me, no, 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 I don't think those books are reliable, I'm just using Acts nine twenty two and 26. And I'd say, well, then, Julian, why are you using three chapters for a book that you don't think is reliable?
0: That's <laughs> yes, a very, then, very good point. And yeah. then here's
1: the second problem. You're juxtaposing Acts versus Paul. Now, which is the primary? Even if you do think Acts is reliable, which is the primary source and which is the secondary source? Well, Paul is yeah. primary and Acts is secondary. Does Paul ever say he saw a light and no body? No, in First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, "I saw Jesus," and he uses the words "anastasis" and so on. Remember Tom Wright's study? You can't use those words and not mean physically mm. raised. So if you just let Paul speak for Paul, don't bring Acts in. Let's just talk. Let's just do research here. Let's talk about primary sources. You lose because Paul's talking about bodily resurrection, and that's why Garrett Ludeman and Dom Crossan and others ask critics. They still think that Paul meant bodily resurrection. So I think the tables have turned on critical scholarship today. By the way, Dom Crossan uses that argument that I just used. He said, we can't put Acts on the same level as Paul. Paul's primary, Acts is secondary. Let Paul talk for himself. And Paul thinks it's bodily resurrection. That's Dom Crossan. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we are fast running out of time. But there one more thing that I think I really must ask you to do with objections uh, is often brought up, and that is, I, I mentioned this to Paul Meyer actually a few weeks ago, and that's the contradictions between the Gospels, uh, but in terms of the resurrection accounts, they're does seem to be quite a proliferation of, well, whether they are contradictions, I'll leave you to answer, but the things like, you know, how many angelic figures were there at the empty tomb? How many people first witnessed the empty tomb? Was there a Roman guard at the tomb or not? Was it Mary Magdalene, or was it Peter who first witnessed the risen Christ? Things like that. These things do trouble people. What would you, what would your personal answer be to that kind of contradiction, if they are contradictions?
1: Sure. I'll, I will give two answers in very brief, because we've already laid the groundwork for at least the main one in this uh, interview. First of all, I think each of those issues, any one you can raise, and you're right, there's several. I think any one of them can be answered on their own grounds, and it's not fair. See, a contradiction is where two things cannot both be and not be in the same time, same place, same manner. The key is proving it's the same time, same place, same manner. And uh, so I don't think you can prove any of those cases that they're contradictions. But let me lay that aside for the moment. I do a minimal facts argument. I don't do a reliability or inspiration argument. If I had to defend all these cases and say, oh, no, there are no objections here and blah, 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 I'd be doing the old reliability argument, but I'm not. I do a minimal facts argument. The minimal facts argument totally bypasses the discrepancy problem, and here's why. Let's just say for the sake of the argument, I don't do this, but let's just say for the sake of the argument I were to concede to you in our make-believe dialogue that Okay, Julian, if you want to say those are discrepancies, let's just call them whatever you want and put them on the table for right now. But here's the problem. My minimal facts argument builds the whole case on what you and I share together. And then now you're saying, well, what about those things we don't share, the discrepancies, we don't share them? I'd say, but you're missing my point. My whole argument is about what we share And now I think because the what we share argument hasn't gone very well for you, you're flipping over to another argument that's not my argument. You're flipping to another argument saying, yeah, but what about the part we don't share? Now, if you were to say, yeah, but if those are problems in the accounts, it militates against what you're saying on your side. And I'm saying not so, because I, once again, am only using arguments that you think are reliable for many good reasons. If they're reliable for many good reasons, the fact that somebody says something that's unreliable or less reliable doesn't take away from what we know. So I guess it's like the case of the uh, courtroom, you know, what happened in this car accident? And you get eyewitnesses up on the stand, and there's not total agreement about who tried to turn left or right or who tried to do what exactly. But everybody agrees that two people died, there was a car accident, there was a red car and a yellow car. We agree on the on the basics. So we can talk about a car accident, people dying, and that's what the resurrection is. We're talking about a, a person dying, a person rising from the dead. And if you say, well, we still don't know how many angels are at the tomb. I'd say, yeah, Julian, but do we know that this man died the cross? Yes. Do we know that he was seen afterwards? He looks like it. Yes. And was he seen bodily? Looks like it. But we still don't know how many angels are there. I'd say, Julian, let's keep talking about it, but we've solved the big issues already. So the core facts, the minimal facts are going to bypasses the, the discrepancy objection.
0: Yes, it's fascinating because actually Paul Meyer gave a very similar kind of answer to that question. Um, I forgot, but I must ask you one thing. I, I have to ask this because it is so popular and I do think that if I miss this off I will have been negligent in my duty and that is that a lot of people these days are saying that the resurrection is mythological, that it's borrowed it's an idea that's borrowed from pagan mythology and I think this really has been popularized by the internet movie The First internet movie zeitgeist um do you give any credence to this at all that uh, the resurrection and or in fact even jesus himself is a kind of hodgepodge of ideas from ancient mythology
1: yeah i i think you know this is probably the most common argument today that you hear mm. but here's the real catch-22 for you why is it that the internet community largely made up of people who do not have degrees at least not relevant degrees don't have university positions, don't have peer-reviewed publications, don't have terminal, you know, certainly don't have terminal degrees, probably don't have any degrees. I'm not trying to say that they're horrible anything, but they're not the best scholars in the field. That's clear. Now, if you ask how many of those folks spread this story around, I've got a former grad student who's now doing a Ph.D. over in the U.K., and he used to survey these things on these websites, and he told me over 90% of these popular, non-university, non-published people, over 90% like this theory you're talking about. But here's my catch-22. How many well-trained scholars, Bart Ehrman again, how many well-trained scholars, Ph.D., New Testament, Princeton uh, Seminary, well-published, non-Christian. How many of these guys believe those theories? Virtually none. Almost none. Hmm. Bart Ehrman goes off on it in his, uh, well, he's got a new book coming out right now, but his last one, Did Jesus Exist? He goes off on the myth theory for about a half dozen pages, and it's brilliant. It's a brilliant critique. And he says, he's writing to the people, the ones who question Jesus' existence, and he basically says, I don't know where you people are coming from, but there are no... There are no crucified and risen saviors before Jesus. None. So why do you guys repeat this? There's no historical information. First of all, almost nobody's in that category, and then secondly, when you find somebody in that category, he's after Jesus. The, the, at least the sources are after Jesus. So uh, here's a let the non-Christian scholar speak, and and he says, no, "This is a joke." So the catch-22 is between 90% of non-professional. Researchers who say yes, and the almost 0% of professional researchers, no matter how skeptical, who say no. And I think it's because this is a theory that's it's not well grounded. I will tell you this the earliest sources we have for the earliest gods and goddesses, you know, who were supposedly raised from the dead, the earliest sources we have are 2nd and 3rd century AD. But Jesus died over a century before that up to two centuries before that. So the earliest cases we have are post-Christian. There's a lot of reasons against this, but one of the main ones is there's just no source data to back it up. Of course, the other one is a huge objection we've laid out for this entire interview, and that is because the earliest Christian teachings, the creed and so on, go back to what people said they saw, not what they heard in mythology. They're saying, you know, that I see you in the market yesterday? And the question is, oh, yeah, we saw you in groups. Well, that's what the res- the resurrection is based on eyewitness testimony, not on stories people remember. But the other point is there are no stories like that anyway.
0: Well, Dr. Habermas, I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw the uh, interview to a close now. It's a great shame because lo- there are other things that I'd love to ask you. Um, but it has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for coming on um, I just wanted to draw attention to your website before we actually did close. This is GaryHabermas.com. Can you very, very briefly tell people what's available there?
1: Uh, There's a lot of articles, interviews, there's even debates with uh, unbelievers on various aspects of the questions we've discussed here. Uh, There's a lot of things on the website, but most of it has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. There is some on your death experience, which is another common category there. But uh, I don't sell things on my website. I don't sell my books. So it's there for people to see and listen to. It's just there to further people's research and knowledge. And I hope it's helpful for people who are interested in these questions. I appreciate you bringing it up.
0: Well, thank you ever so much again. It's been a really absorbing conversation. And I know that, as I said before, you've had a really busy schedule just recently and the great demands to speak all across the world. So thank you very much indeed for joining us today on The Mind Renewed.
1: Thank you very much. Julian, I'm telling you, I have done hundreds, hundreds of interviews. And yours was just excellent. I rarely, rarely have interviews from people who know what they're talking about, know how to get to the heart of the issue, know the literature. And I just thank you for a very incisive set of questions. You did an excellent job.
0: Thank you ever so much. Great to have you on.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.